Uh, the first reading is from Exodus chapter 33. We're going to start at verse 18. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When the glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai, present yourself there, to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name. The Lord, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. O Lord, if I have found favour in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. And then if we could turn over the page to chapter 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two stone tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant, because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he, had, what he had been commanded, they saw his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. And the second reading is Second Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 1 to 18. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we, like some people, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. 
Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has now no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were dull. For to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is God's Word. We're in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. Let me lead us in prayer. The great God and Father, what, what could be more wonderful than beholding your glory? Moses couldn't do that. He could only see your back. He had to be hidden. It would destroy him to see it all. And yet you tell us we can behold your glory, your beauty, your majesty. So Father, help us understand this rightly. And we pray that your spirit would indeed continue to be at work amongst your people so that we can indeed rightly understand but rightly behold your glory and so be changed. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, confidence. That's why Paul has written this little section. Confidence, really. Uh, this particular section of uh, this letter, Paul has written it so that we would be more confident. Now, not in ourselves. Although sometimes that's a good thing, I guess. But uh, not that's what he. So that we be confident in when his message, the gospel message that he proclaimed then, and it's the same message now. If we understand this rightly, we will be more confident people in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now, confidence is a funny thing. We use it in different ways, don't we? The language gets used uh, variously in different uh, terms. So in a sporting arena, uh, he lacks confidence at the moment, so doesn't perform very well. But the next tournament, his confidence is high, and so he wins. And it's the same player with the same abilities, and the difference is he's just more confident. It's sort of elusive thing. Or in the financial markets, there is great confidence in this supermarket. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, there really isn't. 
uh, and it drops through the floor and thousands, millions of pounds are wiped away just because of confidence or a lack of it. It's a funny thing, confidence. We were away last week, uh, as I say, we were in Derbyshire and uh, spent most of the week sort of walking up and down hill and dale. Uh, very beautiful place. At one point we came um, over a stile and you could see we entered this field and there were, I don't know, 150 cattle in the field, cows. But that's all right. They were sort of not really where we wanted to go. But they started to walk over a little bit. And uh, there was a certain nervousness amongst the troops of the family. Oh, we can't go this way. We have to go back. Didn't we? It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. We can go this way. No, no. There was there was a great deal of nervousness. It's fine. Look, they're, they're over there. We're over here. No problem. But then one started to... What's the term? Gallop? No. What does a cow do? Trot? No. Charge. Charge might be overstating it, to be honest. <laughs> walk purposefully. So, okay, one of the cows started to walk purposefully into our path. He was clearly a bit agitated, and he was mooing, not sort of gently, but sort of aggressively. I don't, I don't know how to explain an aggressive moo, but it was an aggressive sort of moo. Nostrils were flaring. <laughs> no, moo. He was, he was clearly not happy and uh, trotted over to some other cows on another fence and was talking to them uh, and kept looking over at us. And you're thinking, oh, so oh, no, we're not going. Then the farmer appeared and said, oh, it's fine. It's fine. Don't believe what you read in the papers. No one gets attacked by cows. It's fine. People have walked across my land all my life. No one's ever been touched by a cow. It's fine. And an aggressive cow sort of wandered off, and we went through. It was fine. But confidence is sort of, yeah, we'll be fine. Ooh, we're not so sure about it. Oh, no, we'll be fine. The word of the farmer came to us and uh, comforted us, and we were a lot more confident. It's a funny thing, isn't it, confidence? How it ebbs and it flows. Paul is writing this whole letter, really, to the Corinthian church, who are, or have in part, lost confidence in him. And his message. If you've been with us when we look at this letter, some uh, false bogus apostles have appeared uh, with a slightly different message, and they're disparaging Paul. And well, they well certainly we'll see today they have um, uh, some form of uh, rule-based faith or legalistic faith, and certainly they were more impressive when you get as the letter progresses. Theirs was a sort of impressive, sort of ooh, whizzy sort of uh, ministry. Theirs was fireworks. Going off, bang, 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 exciting. Whereas Paul's was, I don't know, just electricity. Less exciting, perhaps, but probably going to change your life a lot more uh, in, in an average week. But so there was excitement. So, well, Paul's ministry, is that right? Should we follow him and his message and what's going on? There's a lack of confidence. And so Paul is writing to build their confidence. So you see it um, uh, chapter 3, verse 4, he talks about confidence. He's confident and he wants them to be confident. If we understand it, chapter 3, verse 12, we are bold if we get this. Similar idea, confidence in this message, boldness in what the gospel of Jesus Christ can achieve. That's what he wants us to get this morning. What this is just a progression of what we've seen so far. If you were here last time, uh, Paul argued that his sufferings, they demonstrated that he was legitimate. His uh, love for them, his concern for them, his heart for them. But this section, I, I guess the main evidence he advances, here's why I'm legitimate, here's why you can be confident, 
is because the, the gospel message that I preach changes people. So we had it read, the second half of chapter 2. You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. I think that second part is very much a public display. People can see that the lives of these Christians have been dramatically changed. And this work is the result, verse 3, of Paul's ministry. Not through the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone, but by the Spirit's work, which comes through Paul's preaching, the Spirit's work in people's hearts. So essentially he says to the, to the, the people back then, look, here are two products on offer. We could say it this morning. Here are two products on offer this morning then. There is, says Paul, my gospel message of Jesus Christ, which brings the power of God's Spirit into people's lives. Or, on the other hand, there's the ministry of the bogus apostles. They align themselves in some way with Moses. Those are your two offers, and it matters which path you choose. It matters because, one, only this gospel message that Paul preached will change you. Deeply change you. Whereas this false, it'll scratch the surface a little bit. But Paul's message will change you. And it'll do so because secondly, Paul's message, it allows you to see the glory of God. His beauty. His majesty. In a way which cannot leave you the same. Passage really breaks into two sections. Verses 7 to 11 we might call the, the, the glory of life. Uh, uh, Paul's message is more glorious because it brings life. And then 12 to 18, the glory of sight. But we'll work through them. Let's look at verses uh, uh, 7 to 11 then. We'll call this the glory of life because Paul's message brings life. Now, look, if you just a straight, straight little comparison of these verses, verses 7 to 11, here's what you get between the two different paths you can take. There's Paul's ministry and um, that of the bogus apostles. I don't know if we've got a little, uh, little table. We've got the little table. There we go. So just picking out, there's a, there's a little comparison list between the two. So Paul says, look, these false kids, new kids on the block, the bogus apostles, they bring a ministry of death, I bring you a ministry of the Spirit. They bring you a ministry that kills, I give you a ministry that gives life. Theirs is merely external, my ministry will work internally. Theirs will condemn you, mine will bring righteousness. Theirs has really faded away to nothing, it's based upon uh, the, uh, the mosaic system which has faded out. Whereas I give you the ministry of Jesus Christ which endures forever. Now you look at those two lists and think, that's a very obvious choice, isn't it? But it's obviously a bit more subtle than that. But Paul is putting it in stark terms. And I guess that what he's trying to do, particularly in this section, is that, that what we're having to read in a little bit to the background, but it seems to be... Uh, Bogus apostles are saying, well, look, we align ourselves with Moses. And uh, when he was in town, things were pretty wonderful, weren't they? Do you remember his face glowed? That was how amazing the ministry of Moses was. His face glowed. Paul is saying, now look, the, the ministry of Jesus Christ through the gospel is different. It is more glorious. And let me explain why. And that's what he's doing here. Let me try and break a little further. Uh, so to, let me break this into two halves, I think. The stone law condemns stone hearts. 
whereas Christ's righteousness brings the Spirit into our hearts. Those are not snappy or memorable, but I'm trying to summarize here what the text is saying so we get it. Let's work through it, verses uh, 7 downwards. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites couldn't look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious the ministry that brings righteousness? Okay. Paul says, yes, Moses. Moses in the book of Exodus went up the mountain and received the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And it was awe-inspiring. There's fire, there's thunder, lightning. It's breathtaking. Everybody, all the crowds are stand back. The Israelites, they were very scared to go. But his face comes down from the mountain and it glows. Now that's, you know, not just he spent too long in the sunshine. Glows in a magnificent way. But when we had Exodus 33 read, do do you notice what the reaction was of the Israelites? They saw Moses' face and we were told they were scared. Exodus 33 verse 30, they feared. Because they looked upon Moses and thought, uh uh-oh. Moses has met with a God. We're not seeing God, we're just seeing Moses' face. So there's God, we're seeing Moses, and that terrifies us. Because we know we cannot have dealings with that God. They were afraid of what meeting with this Lord or God would do to them. So that's why Paul will say, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 7, the Israelites couldn't look at the face of Moses. They were scared. It was judgment upon them. They could know a God as awe-inspiring as this, not when they were hard-hearted people, sinful people, Exodus 33, stiff-necked people. So there's a problem. Now, Paul is very clear. The Old Testament laws, they're brilliant. So uh, Romans 7, verse 12, the law is holy, righteous, good. The Ten Commandments are brilliant. They're brilliant laws, better than uh, Ed Miliband or Dave Cameron or Jean-Claude Juncker can uh, think up and impose upon us, better than any laws that any modern politician will produce. But the problem was the people. The law, written on tablets of stone, Ten Commandments on stone, could make no impression on a people whose Hearts were stone. The problem was not with the law, but with their hearts. They're unable to keep it. This is obvious, but forgive me this, uh, a little bit of darkness. This is, this was a favorite toy for a while in our household. His name is, um, he's a Robo Sapien. And you can see he's a fairly magnificent robot. Uh, and, uh, uh he came with a quite a big, thick instruction manual. And uh, here's his uh, instructions and controls. And, you know, for a small boy, he does everything you could possibly want. He he thumps, he dances, he burps, he high-fives, he passes wind. Everything you'd want from a robot. If you're a small boy, uh, this thing can do. So with great excitement, he's taken from the box. And uh, all the instructions are read. And um, all the buttons were pressed. And unsurprisingly, he did nothing. Everything's brilliant. It's meant to be, you know, all these things he can do. He can dart. He can throw. He can do a wolf whistle. Uh, he can jump. Wow, amazing. He can pick things up. He can throw things. Brilliant. That all sounds fun if you're whatever it was at the time, a seven-year-old boy. He did nothing. 
You know why he did nothing. Why did he do nothing? He's got no batteries in him. The problem is not with the instructions. The problem is not with the demands being made of him. The problem is very simple. He's got no batteries. Wretched people, they'll charge you a fortune for the robot. They won't include any batteries. And nowhere's open on Christmas Day to buy them. Anyway. And good laws don't change people. The Ten Commandments didn't change the Israelites because they had hearts of stone. In fact, they just made them realize they're in trouble with a perfect God. So what are we told that the law does? Verse 9, that the, the ministry of Moses, it condemned men. Oh, it's glorious, it's magnificent, the law's good, holy. And Moses himself, wonderful, face shining, very impressive. But that good law condemned the people back then. My parents live in a beautiful little village, and uh, it's entirely sensible. There's a 30-mile-an-hour limit through the village, good for the children at the schools, all the little shops that people bustle in and out of. Very sensible law. If you speak to my parents about drivers through their village, they get very agitated. People drive far too fast through the village. It's ridiculous. It's 40, 50 miles an hour. People are so selfish, and they get very worked up about the speeds that people drive through the village. Now, you could ask them, Mum, Dad, have you ever exceeded the speed limit? In the village? Maybe. Have you ever been stopped by a policeman in the village? Maybe. Do you remember the time you got points on your license because you sped through the village? No, but I think it did happen at some point in the past. There's a very sensible law. They know it's a good law, but it's condemned them. They fell short. And it's the same issue here. The good law that Moses brought condemned the people because they had hearts of stone. That was the problem. It's only a temporary ministry. Paul keeps saying it a number of times. It's a temporary ministry. It was fading away because, you know, you have street lamps at night, but they fade away in the daytime. You don't, they're switched off because it's just a time for something different where the ministry of Jesus Christ comes. The stone law condemned people with stone hearts. Now, tangent, Paul is talking broad brush here. I need to say that perhaps. Of course, there are individuals within Israel whom the Spirit did. Uh, You'd have to give life to uh, particular prophets and psalmists and kings, uh, individuals upon whom the Spirit was active for particular purposes. There was always a remnant within Israel who were genuinely believers. Yet broad brush, Paul could say, Back then, the ministry of Moses condemned the people because they couldn't keep the law that they were given. Now, this is not just a history lesson for you and for me. Uh, Many in society, of course, still believe if you pass the right laws, you'll change people. But you won't. Don't mishear me. Legislation matters. If you have good legislation, it encourages righteous living. Of course it encourages that. It helps a country flourish. If you have bad legislation, it's bad for a nation. Of course that's true. That matters. And yet, good laws don't make good men. You don't change anyone within. Don't put your confidence in external laws, Paul would say. 
Or in the religious arena, there'll be religious gurus who offer 10 steps to a better you. You know, step one, wake up in the morning and say to the mirror, you are a wonderful person. Step two, say to the mirror, you are going to succeed today and on it goes in that sort of trite way. It won't change you because it doesn't affect your heart. The stone law condemns stone hearts in verses 7 to 9. By contrast, Christ's righteousness brings the Spirit into our hearts. We read from uh, verse 8. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater the glory of that which lasts. Paul says, my ministry, the preaching of the gospel, which brings the Spirit, God's Spirit, to work in people's lives, what does it do? Verse 6, that ministry gives life. That's why it's more glorious. This ministry of the Spirit, verse 9, doesn't condemn people, but is more glorious because it brings righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul turns to really um, switch to legal categories. He's contrasting condemnation with righteousness. Oscar Pistorius recently was uh, stood in a courtroom and was condemned for culpable homicide, as they call it, in South Africa. He was guilty. He wasn't righteous. That is, innocent, yes, but more than that, in right standing. He was guilty. He was condemned. And uh, that, that, that happened. And then a few days later, he had to stand before the judge for his sentencing. Now, how do you go, if you ask a pastorist, you go before the judge for your sentencing? Nervous, I take it. Pretty anxious. Fearful. How many years? How long? How severe? He was guilty, condemned, therefore fearful. Paul is going to go on to say, let me just flick across to chapter 5, verse 21, because it's such a, a lovely little summary verse, really, of what he's going to go on to say. Here is the heart of his message, of his apostolic gospel, chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We were sinful, Jesus was righteous, and upon the cross there's a simple swapper exchange. He takes our sin and condemnation, we get his righteousness. That is the verdict placed upon our lives. Now, if you're given a verdict of innocent, righteous, how do you go before a judge? Confident. If the declaration has already been made, you're innocent, you've got to go for a sentencing. Why? Your sentencing is, go home. Because you're innocent, we've already decided that. You approach in a completely different way. So Paul's logic is here. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you are righteous. That is the declaration upon you. That is the verdict upon your life. Now you can approach God with confidence. And now God's spirit can dwell within your heart to change you. So it is, of course, what very happens. The batteries go in. You trust in Jesus Christ. You receive the righteousness. 
you receive his uh, status as the righteous one, and the spirit comes in, and there he goes. And many other things besides um, oops, that he once did. When the batteries go in, there's a remarkable change. When the Spirit of Christ enters, there's a remarkable change. The verdict of righteousness, because you trust in Christ upon you, the Spirit transforms. The glory of the Spirit's ministry, the glory of Jesus Christ, bringing a righteousness that lasts forever. And therefore, he can say in verse 12, since we have that sort of hope, we're very bold. Very bold. Paul is, I mean, it's a dense argument he's making here, but he says, look, just be confident in the gospel. It transforms people's lives radically. Nothing else works in a way such as this. The, the peddlers, they have an outside in message. You, you keep these external laws, then somehow external to you, outside will work in. No, no, he says, the gospel message inside out, God changes your heart and that works through into your behavior. Radical change, so be bold. I struck a little while ago, uh, some, particularly if you're a Brit, would know A.N. Wilson, he was a staunch atheist for many years, spent two decades writing uh bile, really, vitriol against the Christian church, uh, saying how uh, Jesus was quite a nice man, but the Paul completely distorted everything and created a, a horrific religion in Christianity. Then all of a sudden one day he said, I'm so sorry, I was an atheist, I've changed my mind, I'm a Christian. Fairly dramatic, and uh, the two elements that really fed into him, becoming a Christian, so he said, uh, one was the behavior of some of his atheist friends, but the other, he, so he realized people's lives were dramatically changed as Christians. He wrote a piece in the paper a little while ago. There was a big fuss about numbers declining in the Church of England. He said, who cares? Numbers mean nothing. It doesn't matter if there are millions believing in Korea or far smaller in the UK. Numbers mean nothing. And he wrote this. Greg or shrinking numbers don't tell you anything. The gospel would be true if no one believed it. The hopeful thing is, that where it's tried, where people believe, it works. I realized it's palpable and remarkable power to transform human life. It takes us to the position of believing. It certainly did so for me when I saw the change that it wrought. I looked upon the lives of Christians and thought, well, they change. They, they say they believe, and it makes a real difference to their lives. Well, okay, I'll better take it seriously then. Let me have another look at what the Bible says. Very striking. The glory, the glory then of, uh, uh, of the, in verses, uh, seven to eleven. Let's look particularly at the second section, the glory of sight, in verses thirteen to the end, and more briefly here. Be bold, he says. Be bold. You can be really confident. Because the gospel brings life. But secondly, then, the veil, the glory of sight. Now, two little things here. Let's follow it through. Verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we're very bold, okay? We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. Remember Exodus 34? 
Why did Moses veil his face? Well, in Exodus, it was to protect the people. They needed to be protected. They couldn't reveal, he couldn't reveal the full glory of God. It made them, well, they feared destruction at his hands. Paul says, back then, they were terrified that God would destroy them. Now, I can reveal the full glory of God to you, because you're righteous. No need to be ashamed, no need to be guilty. You can see it all. But you get a slight change of metaphor here, of veiling and unveiling. So verse 14. But the Israelites, their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It's not been removed. Only in Christ is it taken away. So rather than saying there were hearts of stone, the metaphor changes. The Israelites had their hearts veiled. They couldn't see how wonderful, really, God was. There's a veil across their hearts. And, he says, it's still the same to get today. Anyone who isn't a believer has a veil across their hearts. It's a veil of dullness or hardness. So, veiled hearts, stone hearts. It's the same imagery, just a slightly different picture. And it remains at issue to the day, to this day. So, what do you do with that? Turn to Christ, he says, and the veil is removed. You'll be de-veiled. So uh, let me read it again. Verse 15, for to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. That's still the case for most people. But, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Who's the Lord? Actually, it's a bit tricky there. But I think it must be Christ. Because verse 14, the veil is only removed when you turn to Christ. So verse 16, when anyone turns to Jesus Christ, the veil is taken away. And yet verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's an intimate relationship between Jesus Christ and his Spirit. Jesus would say, John 16, that, that the work of the Spirit fundamentally is to bring glory to him. Can't separate those two too closely. So, let me try and put it, uh, summarize it in one sense. When we turn to Jesus Christ, the Spirit removes the veil that is upon our hearts. And now, says Paul, the eyes of our hearts can truly see the glory of God in an utterly transforming manner. See, the Lord, you turn to Jesus Christ, you become a Christian, the Spirit removes the veil upon your heart, and then you really, really can see God. So, verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit, where the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect, I think the footnote is a better translation, contemplate, behold. We who with unveiled faces all contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness at ever increasing glory. When you gaze at the sun, you're changed. There's melanin in your skin, it changes color, vitamin D in your body. Gazing at the sun, it changes us, not in a particularly profound way, but it does change us. Paul says, when you gaze at Jesus Christ, you're changed. Fundamentally, deeply, we look upon him, how magnificent he is, and our character is changed as we look to him. 
Why does all this matter? Two things that we're done. You've got to be confident then, and secondly, contemplate Christ. Here's really where he's going. The main application is be confident. Be confident. Paul, I mean, it's a very dense argument, but essentially he says, look, the gospel I've preached to you, it works. It genuinely changes people, not just superficially, but deeply, personally, at the level of the heart. It changes you. Be confident. Don't turn anywhere else. Don't do that. If you're a Christian, don't lose hope in the power of the gospel message to change people. Uh, away last week, I read a biography of a chap, not a Christian chap, but a chap called Louis Zamparini. Uh, biography is called Unbroken. He was uh, uh, an Olympian in the 1930s, was on course to be the first man to break the four-minute mile, but war broke out. Uh, and he went off to war. He was a pilot uh, for the USA uh, in the um, in the Pacific. Uh, plane went down in 1943. He survived for uh, 42 days on the ocean, being attacked by sharks. He's, he's, he's a complete character. He keeps just bashing the sharks on them. On the, you know, 20-foot great white attacks him, just bashes it on the nose and scares it off. He's an extraordinary man. 42 days he survives on the ocean. But then from uh, uh, May 43 to August 45, he's in Japanese prisoner of war camps and he's treated horrifically. And it's not a biography for the, for the faint-hearted. Don't just, oh, that sounds like, look, you, it's, it's pretty brutal. You know, there's a reason that 37% of prisoners of war died in Japanese camps. Uh, it was a pretty brutal time. And the regime he suffers under there is horrific. So what really stands out is when he meets one prison guard in one camp, a man, he only knew his one name, Kawamura, who arrives one day as a new guard, guarding him outside his little shack of a shell, and has slipped some extra food. I mean, the rations are just small amounts of seaweed. He gets boiled up every day. He gets proper food. And uh, Zamparini gets beaten up by some of the other guards. But this guard, Kawamura, he goes and beats them up and says, don't do that again. And he looks after him, slips him more food, builds up some strength, slips him, slips him some candy. Uh, and so completely different when this guard's around. And eventually they sort of try and communicate across languages. But the one thing that the guard can say to him, Louis, why? Why are you different? I'm a Christian. And it just is this moment of great light and a pretty bleak biography in one sense. But for two years he's treated horrifically apart from one guard who stood out because he's a Christian. It's a very little striking incident. And Paul is saying here, as you turn to Christ, and the Spirit removes the veil upon your heart, and you look and you behold the glory of Jesus Christ, there is a power to change people that is unlike any other in this world. Don't lose confidence in that. You can look around this like, well, what we're doing at... Paul, what you're doing in your ministry looks very unimpressive. These guys, they've got fireworks going off. Look, there's a power in the gospel brought in the power of God's spirit to change people. Nothing is like it on this planet. Don't lose confidence. Be bold. If you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian... Paul's, I guess, encouragement here will be turned to Jesus, experience the work of his spirit within you. It is very wonderful. Be confident. And the second which goes along with it is, 
You've got to contemplate Christ or behold him. Verse 18, last thing. We, Christians, who with unveiled faces, because the Spirit has removed the veil, all reflect, contemplate, behold the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. How are you changed? You contemplate the Lord Jesus Christ. You look upon him. And you become like him. The more you study him, the more you walk with him, the more you become like him. We become like the ones we like, admire. Do that with Jesus. Frustrated, oh, you know, this. my life plods on and nothing really remarkable happens and I still have the same battles and the same struggles. Behold him. Contemplate him. It's no shortcut. You've got to dwell upon him. It's a great treat for me at the moment, uh, rereading, spending lots of time in Mark's Gospel for Christianity Explored. Oh, he's so very wonderful. And as you contemplate Jesus Christ, you are changed from glory to glory. So be confident that that work is taking place. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you've had this recorded for us. We want to be those who are bold, who are confident in this gospel message and its power to change. We will not drift away. Would our confidence not ebb and flow? But will we be certain and sure that it is as we behold the Lord Jesus Christ that his spirit is at work, changing us deeply so we become more like him? Would we trust you as you go about that work, we pray in his great name. Amen.